calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona. I don't believe it. Well left by York. Fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole for Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gates with a shot. Sheringham. Name on the trophy. Beckham. It's a Sheringham. And Solskjaer has done it. Welcome to episode 41 of the Red Devil Talk podcast, a podcast where I speak to athletes, coaches and performers to find out their secrets in achieving high performance. This week, as a huge snooker fan, I'm absolutely buzzing to say I'm joined by a man who has been champion of the world. This man is a UK championship winner, a Masters champion and of course, World Snooker Championship 2021 finalist is of course, Sean Murphy. Sean, it's a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no, a pleasure to be here with you, Jimmy, actually. We're really looking forward to our chat. Thanks very much. Let me begin by saying congratulations on a first-class performance over the 17 days at Sheffield. Of course, there's no getting away from it. You would have been gutted to lose that final. But now that the dust has settled and you've had time to reflect, Sean, how do you reflect on what you achieved over the 17 days? Yeah, I think certainly in the wider context of the season that I'd had, you know, it'd been one of it'd been a terrible season for me. I've struggled with the, you know, the whole COVID lockdown scenario, the travel restrictions between. Ireland and, and mainland uh, Britain and um, you, you know it was it was it was really hard going to be I spent a lot of time in isolation uh, in hotel rooms and stuff as did all the other players but they got to go home between events whereas coming back to Ireland was quite complicated so I, I didn't spend a lot of time away from my family I have a young family here in Dublin and um, you know that was quite challenging you know FaceTime's great but it kind of pulls at the heartstrings at the same time and um, Again, that, that's easier to take if you're getting the rewards for it, if you are getting the results, if you are having runs deep into events, which I wasn't. And so, yeah, it was, you know, in that context, from that perspective, finishing runner-up in the World Championships, having endured that for a year, um, obviously was, was, was great. And, and, and uh, ultimately, you, you know, I've come second in the biggest tournament in the world. Um, I suppose if you'd offered me that at any stage during the season, I would have snapped your hand off. Um, losing to Mark Selby, you know, is no disgrace. I got to within three frames of the line. Um, and, uh, you know, for, from, from a lot of different perspectives, it was, very, it was a successful, you know, three weeks. I'd be lying if I said that there isn't still, you know, a, a small tinge of disappointment. Of course there is. You know, as a child growing up as a, in snooker, growing up and becoming a young junior player, amateur player, professional, all the rest of it, that, that match, the, champ, the final of the World Championships, that's the match you grow up dreaming of winning. No one dreams of losing that match. And I've been in that final now four times in my career. And, you know, I've got one world trophy to show for it. And uh, I have to sort of accept that my style of play, which is very aggressive and go for my shots. And that's, that's probably the reason I've only got one world title, but at the same time, it's the only reason that I've got one world title. So it's, you know, it's the, my style of snooker is, 
is kind of live by the sword, die by the sword. Uh, when I play golf with my mates, you know, I'm, I'm taking the tiger line off every tee. I'm going at every flag. That's just who I am. So I, I've accepted that now as a 38-year-old man, father of two. Um, been through quite a lot in my life. I've accepted all those uh, facets of my character. And so I look at it from a much higher perspective now, from a much bigger perspective. Um, apart from not getting to 18 before Mark Selby, it was, a, it was a great run and a great experience for those two and a half weeks. You mentioned in your post-match interview, I'm paraphrasing now, this wasn't your exact words, but you implied that the tournament had reinvigorated your love for the game, essentially. Would it be a fair comment to say you lost your passion a little bit for snooker? Yeah, I mean, what I've lost was I've lost my passion for life. It was a bit more serious than that. You know, I thanked the crowd there after the, after the thing because I, I think what I said was something along the lines of, you know, everyone who's come through those turnstiles and bought a ticket, they brought me back. And there's very few people know how, how, how deep, you know, I'd slipped throughout the year. You know, I, I never actually went to see a doctor and spoke about the word depression and I didn't actually go down that road. But I've no doubt that if I'd gone to see somebody, they would have prescribed me some medication and told me to sit in a dark room for a period of time. Like, you know, I, I just wasn't in a fit state mentally to, you know, cope with life. I was terribly, terrible humour when I was at home. I, was, I think my wife I, it must have been terrible company when I was, you know, I was irritable. Um, you know, a very low ebb. I'd spend days in the house, you know, not doing any exercise, not not really going to practice like I should. I just, you know, I think everyone suffered in the last 12 months, you know, and, and it really affected me. And, you know, you throw in the element of spending long periods of time away from your family, um, you know, in a strange place, you're locked in. There's none of the aspects that make tour life fun existed any anymore during the last year. And, um, yeah, the whole thing became quite difficult. And it, I, I kept saying that I felt that when crowds returned, when the public returned, um, I felt that would, could be the difference for me. And I'd, I learned quite a lot about myself in those 12 months of no, no audiences. Um, I learned how much I thrive on that atmosphere and uh, how thankful and grateful I am for these people who pay their money to come and watch the snooker and create that atmosphere for you to perform in. And um, I had a sneaky suspicion that when they returned, my game might return as well. Um, but obviously, I couldn't have predicted uh, what happened at the Crucible. And, and I think the overriding feeling after the final, certainly when I made my concession speech, was just one of gratitude. Because it wasn't just a love for snooker that I'd lost. It was a, it was a love for life. It was a, you know, I was in quite, quite a dark place mentally. And uh, they brought me back. Well, I can say with great confidence that you've gained a lot of new fans over the two weeks. I think that was clear. We saw a side to you that we haven't really seen before, the fist pumping, trying to engage the crowd. Personally, I thought that was excellent. I love to see people's personalities coming through in a performance. Was that a conscious effort to earn the backing of the crowd or just a natural showing of emotions? No, no, it wasn't a conscious thing at all. It was a pure playing on my emotions. I just, I, I made a decision. Um, I made a decision that the only conscious thing was I made a decision about a year ago, just before lockdown, that I was going to embrace um, probably who I really am in terms of snooker. I, you know, because I, I, I am a showman. Um, I am a show off. 
Um, you know, my wife says I'm the biggest show off she's ever met. That's who I am. And, um, you know, I never, you know, never back away from a challenge and all those other things. And uh, there's a funny kind of etiquette in snooker where amongst the players, it's only amongst the players, this, the whole fist pumping thing and engaging the crowd. And even when you make a century break, you know, if you just acknowledge the crowd for their applause, it's kind of frowned upon backstage. Now, I think the feedback I've had from social media and everyone I've spoke to is that they loved it and they, 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 were, they, they loved the fact that I was interacting with them and uh, giving them my energy and they gave it back to me. And, you know, my, my Twitter feed has been full of, you know, positivity around that engagement. But I, I know for a fact that, you know, in players', in players lounges and rooms around the country and in, in, you know, in, in snooker players' homes, uh, there'll have been some raised eyebrows. And I guess it's one of those things where you have to go, well, I'm probably going to upset a few of my peers by doing this. Um, but it's who I am. And I've decided that, especially after the 12 months we've, we've had, uh, it's time for us to just be who we are. Because your life could be taken from you at any stage. You know, your life can be stopped. You can be told to stay in your house. Your life stops. Your social life stops. Your business life stops. And I think it's just time we engage and be who we really are. And who I am in snooker terms, like, I am that, you know, entertainer. I am that emotional player. I do want to, you know, give the crowd value for money and entertain them and send them away with a smile on their face. Um, I've been wanting to fist pump and, and get involved with the crowd from being a, a 17, 18-year-old rookie pro. But in snooker, I don't know why, I don't know where it comes from, but in snooker, it's, it's never been the done thing. And it's only that we've been through the year we've been through that I, I've just decided to, you know, let go of those shackles um, and just let, and let it out. And the feedback has been, uh, you know, overwhelming, to be honest. Um, but, but no, I mean, aside from, aside from making a decision um, that I would let it out, um, there was nothing conscious about it. I just decided, you know, I, I can't remember even when I did the first one, what, whatever it was that started it. Um, but I remember like potting a big black against Kyron in the semi-finals. And before I've watched it back, before I know what I'm doing, I'm fist giving the fist to the crowd. Like, you know, you don't see that in snooker. But maybe you'll see a bit more of it from now, now going forward. I hope we do. I think it's brilliant. I think it really, I think it really makes you identifiable with the crowd. Yeah, I think, I think, I, I mean, I've heard for many, many years, I'm ah, sure there's no characters left in snooker these days. And I'm not really sure what that means. You know, I, I, I sometimes think maybe people mean what they really mean is that there's no players headbutting officials or, you know, <laughs> weeing in plant pots or whatever it might be, like some players used to in years gone by. Um, I can assure you there are plenty of characters on the snooker tour. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of great guys on the tour and we have a lot of great fun and banter and, you know, there's, there's plenty of characters. But it does seem that when they put their suit on and they put their bow tie on, everyone becomes a bit glum-faced and they can play a great shot and you wouldn't know. And they can make a century break and the crowd erupt and nothing. I've always been quite critical of a match finisher. These people have paid to come and watch you um, the match finishes, you shake hands with each other and the referee, and they run off the stage. They're gone within seconds. I, I, it's always, and it's always baffled me. I've never understood it. And um, 
maybe I think may, maybe there might be a slight change happening as the younger generation coming through. You know, you could see some of the younger guys coming through um, being a little bit more engaging with the crowd. I think one of the things that snooker players have to remember is that we are first and foremost in the entertainment industry. If we don't entertain and put on a show, people stop paying to come and watch us. Then the sport dies. Do you think that that regulating of your emotions, if I can call it that, actually enhances your own performance? And also, do you think it unnerves your opponent? Well, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure about the unnerving of the opponent. I, I, I can imagine some opponents who would be, um, they would be buoyed by that. They would, they would be enthused by it themselves. They'd see it as a chat and right, you know, I can do this, he can do it, I can do it. Um, and, and, and it was never my intention to put anyone off or to throw anyone off course. I was very, I was very, um, I tried to be courteous with my opponents in terms of celebrating my own shots. I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating your own successes, your good shots, your good frames. If you've stolen a frame or made a good break or made a good pot, they're your successes. That's okay to celebrate, in my opinion. But yeah, I, you know, I think there's a, an element of catharsis in letting it out. Um, everyone talks about Tiger Woods maybe being the greatest sportsman of all time or certainly one of the best. Well, he was very prone to a, you know, a, 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 an explosion of emotion, be it a fist pump or a big shout or a snap club or a bang of the tee box or whatever it might be, just to get it out. And there's quite a deep element of psychology in that. This, you, know, the, the, you know, catharsis is, is great for you. And you can get that pent-up emotion and let it out. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a believer in that. I think that's good. Um, but I, I think more, more than that, you know, I'd love to see more snooker players now take on that mantle of engaging with the crowd. These people who've paid their hard-earned money to come and watch you play. They've come to be entertained. Particularly after what we've all just endured for the last year or so. We've all been locked in our houses. We now owe it to the public to entertain them, to put on a show for them. Because um, we've been very fortunate in snooker. Our world has can continued. Now, it's, it's obviously carried on in a very different way, but it has carried on. The players have all had the same earning opportunities, bar the tournaments in the Far East. But the tour has survived and the tour has carried on. There are lots of people I know who've lost their jobs, who've lost their careers, they've lost all their earning income. They've, they've, you know, their, their big savings accounts they'd saved up for years and years for that rainy day. Well, it's been raining for a year and they've blown their savings now. There are lots of friends I know who are in serious trouble after the year we've had. Our tour has continued. I think the least we can do now going forward is remember that we are an entertainment industry and try and put on a good show. I want to ask you about your children. I know you have young kids. Do they understand when they see daddy on the TV or what kind of things do they say to you? Yeah, I don't think so just yet. I think Harry, uh, who's the eldest at four, I think he kind of, because he, he, um, he and my wife Elaine uh, had a, a, a FaceTime interview with Hazel um, on the BBC during the World Final. And that was sort of Harry made his TV debut. Um, and I think he half understood that he, he could see himself on the TV and he was making faces and then he was engaging with Hazel and answering some questions and, uh, very sweetly ended the interview by a callback when Molly's awake. You know, his little sister was asleep. So it was quite sweet. Um, 
to be honest with you, I think there was a run of matches through the World Champs or a run of sessions where I was playing at seven o'clock, which is around their bedtime. And they were keen to watch me do the intros. They were keen to watch Rob Walker introduce us. Into, they wanted to see where I was. But as soon as the game started, they wanted Paw Patrol on, you know. <laughs> uh, so we, we, for, I, I, I know firmly where their loyalties lie. Um, but um, I suppose when you're four, that's okay. There's some matches I've watched where I'd much rather watch Paw Patrol as well. So I can give him that. In terms of fatherhood in general, how would you say it's changed your perspective on life? Of course, in your 20s, you know, snooker winning is the be all and end all. But as you get older, did becoming a father change your perspective in life? Is it easier to, I suppose, deal with the big losses? I, I think without question. Uh, but I think, what, you know, you've just touched on it there. Before I had children, um, snooker was the be all and end all of my life and my emotional state was governed by how my snooker was going um, and I'm um, sure my wife would say I was a bit of a you know tough person to live with at times um, I think when you have children um, there's several elements of it you know you don't have time to be down on it you know uh, we wouldn't be Premier League footballers or the golfers or tennis players who would earn the finance to they have chefs and cleaners and housekeepers and live in nannies and all that you know, pair, you know, we wouldn't be in that league. Snooker players aren't in that bracket. And so like when I come home, I dump the bags at the door, you're back into dad mode and Harry and Molly, like they don't care whether you've won or lost. Um, they want you to play with the Hot Wheels tracks in the nursery or they want you to play with the Paw Patrol gear or the PJ masks or get out on the trampoline or in the garden on the swings or the slides or they want you to do bath time or whatever it might be. They don't care whether you've won a, a snooker tournament or lost in a big final or it doesn't matter to them. And so you don't really have the opportunity to uh, wallow in self-pity, which I think for me has been really good because... You know, I would have been susceptible to that. I think when I lost in the world final in 2015, um, you know, I had no children back then six years ago. Like, I don't think I left the house for the best part of two weeks after the final. Just descended into a, a chocolate fest. You know, <laughs> just, <laughs> it just went south on the chocolate. And, um, you know, would have been a bit of a misery, yeah. But I think when you've children, you don't really have time for that. Yeah. Anyone out there who's listening, you know, with children, you just don't have the time. Uh, there's always a pickup to do or a take them to crash or pick them up or somebody needs something doing or there's things to be done in the house or, you know, and um, it's great that for me. It's been great. So when I come home, win or lose, when you're at home, you stay fairly level um, because you're, you, you come back in and you're dad again. And they're not in, and rightly so, you know, they're not in, they don't care who you are in the in the world outside this door um when you walk in here your dad and uh it's time to go on the swings you just touched on it there that your last world final appearance was six years ago and as we've already mentioned you've mentioned the dark days this year you've mentioned your tough season did you think that the big occasions being at the one table set up at the crucible did you think those occasions had passed you by Oh yeah, no. I mean, I can, you know, I can be honest about it now because I'm not trying to kid myself. There have been interviews I've given in the last few years where I've sat there and said, "Oh no, of course I think I can win more of these big tournaments." And I have won big tournaments, but not the majors, the three majors. And um, 
kind of not really performed in any of them over the years, really. I think I had a, I might have played in the UK final four or five years ago. I can't remember. And um, apart from that, you know, I've done nothing in the big tournaments for a long, long time. Um, and whilst, you know, last few years I've picked up some ranking events, win the Welsh Open, China Championships, put some good performances in, you know, made a 147, you know, the little peaks and troughs of performance have been there. But in terms of actually competing for the big, big titles, the majors, um, you know, the tournaments where legacies are built, um, put those days were numbered for me. And although, of course, you know, I've lost, I lost in the final. That has, that has proven to me that those days of at least being able to compete for those titles, they're not gone. No. And, and who knows, maybe my best years aren't behind me like I thought I was. And as I enter the final, certainly the final half, uh, maybe the final third of my proper competitive career where I can be properly competitive, um, as I enter that chapter, maybe the best years are ahead where I can be most effective. You know, I'm not the raw, clueless 22-year-old who came on tour and won the world title in 2005. I'm not him anymore. Um, and I'm not a grand master of, you know, a tactical master like Mark Selby or John Higgins. I'm not him either. Um, but I have got a bit more tablecraft than I used to. Uh, I'm a better player than I was when I won the Masters in 2015. I'm a better player than I was when I lost in the world final in 2015. I'm certainly a better player than I was when I won the world championship back in 2005. So who knows? Maybe the best years are still to come. In these moments of self-doubt, if I can call them that, when you're fearing that these Bill Cadens have passed you by, I would imagine there are moments of deep self-evaluation of your game. Have there ever been times when you thought, I might have to change my philosophy? Because we've mentioned you're an aggressive player. You want to play the game that way. You like to get on with the frames. You don't want to get bogged down into too much safety or long frames. But has there ever been times where you thought you might have to compromise your philosophy? Oh, without question. And, you know, different people I've worked with, different corner men I've had, coaches, advisors. I've had very deep, you know, just friends, even friends who don't play snooker. They don't know anything about snooker. Um, but they would be into sport and stuff like that. You know, I've had long, drawn-out conversations with people to get a sense of what they think. I've had players on tour who I'm very good friends with who have said, who text me after a defeat and said, would you not consider just reeling it in a little bit, you know? Would you not just consider? And um, it's just not who I am. Now, I would make the point that, as I say, I'm certainly much more considered than I used to be. You know, years ago, if I saw a pot, I'd go for it. Whereas now, I at least stand there and evaluate it a little bit. I at least now stand there and go, yeah, can I get this? Or, you know, am I more than likely to get this or not? But the truth is that when I look at the facts, when I actually look at the evidence, pretty much every tournament I've won or every big success I've had in the game has been when I've been going for my shots. And when I've been on the front foot, leading from the front, playing my style of snooker that I enjoy, playing with a smile on my face and, and genuinely enjoying the game. Um, you know, what, and, 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 and that can be any event. That could be the Paul Hunter Classic, could be the Brazilian Masters, uh, the China Championship, the World Championships, UK Championship. You know, 
whichever tournament you'd like to look at, I've always had my success when I've played my way. I think if you try and play any other way, you're not being yourself. You know, some of the other players, you know, take, take Mark Selby, for instance, who I've known for 30 years. He, how he is on the table is how he is off the table. He's quite considered and he's quite cautious and uh, doesn't like to take too many chances. He's not reckless. Um, you know, he's not in the casino every night. Uh, you know, he's not, he's not a big drinker. Um, he's very, very cautious, very considered. Um, you know, mitigates risk in all aspects of that. That's how he is. Um, and how, when you watch me play snooker, probably through uh, closed fingers across your eyes, oh, I can't watch this anymore. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go for that shot. That's how I am in life. That's who I am. And I think when you try to be, when you try to be something you're not, it becomes too complicated. Um, as equal as I'm, I'm not a Ronnie O'Sullivan, you know, and if I tried to be Ronnie O'Sullivan, it would be just as difficult. You have to find who you are, yeah. whether you're a golfer, a tennis player, snooker player, businessman, football, whatever it might be, you have to do you. You have to find what makes you special, what you have that others don't, and focus in on that. And, uh, you know, one of my biggest strengths sometimes is my biggest we were my my very last shot in the world championship final this year where i tried to put a red down the side cushion which was quite high tariff but in my opinion was the shot to play at that moment because i had selby on the ropes at the time i had him rocking and in my opinion if i pop that ball i win the match because i could see he was rolled although i was two frames behind that was a massive swing point for me and one of my biggest strengths is that i've never ever turned away from those big moments. I've never hesitated. I've never bottled, never bottled it. Never, never stepped back from those moments where the, the game, the game sometimes demands that from you. Now's the moment to do it. And I've always been very good at stepping up to that mark. And it, you know, it's cost me sometimes, but it's also won me some tournaments as well. And that's something I'll always stand by. Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. This podcast is brought to you in association with Classic Retro Shirts. Classic Retro Shirts sell a large variety of retro jerseys from a number of clubs and countries and are very prominent on Manchester United. United season ticket holders themselves, giving fans a chance to look back through history. Classic Retro Shirts are on Instagram at Classic Retros 2, or you can visit their website at classicretros.co.uk. To get a £10 discount off your purchase, you can use the code RDT10 at the checkout on the website, or you can send the code via direct message to their Instagram. Classic Retro Shirts. In psychology, there's this idea of vigilance, which is basically the ability to maintain attentional focus over an extended period of time. To me, competing for 17 days at the World Championship, is it a real test of that? What's your own approach? How do you relax in the downtime to ensure you don't end up burned out? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of these, you know, they, you talk about not leaving any stone unturned. And there's a lot of these facets that I think a lot of players are yet to look at yet. You know, what do you do between matches, between sessions? What do you talk about in that 15-minute interval? Uh... What, what do you do? Because you can rush back to the hotel between sessions. You might have two or three hours to kill. What do you do then? 
you win the first match, you've got three days before your next match. What do you do in those three days? And it's, it's, it's massively important to do the right things, as you can imagine. But you are right. It's, it's, it's sometimes, certainly the World Championships is a challenge of you on and off the table. Um, you know, we've had some famous players over the years who, who, who very openly have talked about how they potentially threw away tournaments because their life off the table didn't, didn't allow them to perform on it. And, um, you know, you've got to be careful not to do the right thing. But neither can you live and breathe snooker for 17 days. You have to have a vent. Yeah. Um, and listen, you know, for me, it gets no more complicated than uh, going out for a nice walk. Um, I like to take my car with me whenever I can. So I use the ferry a lot from Ireland. Um, just so that when I'm at an event, I've got my wheels. And if I've got a day off or something to do, I can get in the car and go off and do something. Of course, living in England, I, you know, growing up in England, I should say, um, I know the country like the back of my hand. So, and I've got lots of friends and people I know dotted across the country. I'm never too far away from a cup of coffee at someone's house. And um, having the car with me there gives me that ability to just jump in the car and sail off. I might go to a driving range or a golf club or go and see a friend or whatever. And um, for me, having the car with me whenever possible makes, makes being away that little bit easier certainly makes the car park bills a bit higher as well because the car was the car was parked in the in the multi-story in Sheffield for two and a half weeks and the bill was quite significant um but I had an amazing touch I'm going off the story here but when I, on the day after the final I came to pay my car park tab and um the machine was broken and uh, she said the woman on the on the machine said oh you'll have to ring the head office and pay and I rang the head office to pay and their card machine was down they couldn't take payment over the phone Shit, I'll just have to let you out. I was like, yes! Result! Felt like I'd won. Won at life. <laughs> every cloud. Yeah, every cloud. Yeah, but no, in all seriousness, you know, it's a lot of Netflix. It's a lot of, you know, FaceTiming the kids. Um, not trying to get involved. I used to get involved a lot. I used to run the Players' Commission. I was a board member for WPBSA. And, you know, you'd find yourself, you know, you've got a backlog of emails to get through, work to do for the players. You know, you might be going through the players' contract, you know, looking at looking at in disputes with Barry Hearn or World Snooker Tour and trying to make life better for the players. All that sort of eats away at your own concentration. So I don't do any of that anymore. I've came, I, you know, I took myself out of those positions because um, I felt it was affecting my game. And, you know, really now, you know, it's, it's just keeping your, keeping your emotions in check, not getting too excited if you're having a good run in a tournament. Um, you know, shutting off from shutting off from people is a big one, because as you can imagine, the further you go in an event like the World Championships, your phone gets busier and busier and busier. And maybe not in COVID times, but in in normal times, you know, you'd be sorting out tickets, passes, VIP passes for your sponsors, for partners, um, managers, family, brothers, sisters. You know, all of this stuff. Everyone wants to come. And they, people only want to come to support you. And uh, you know what I mean? It's great. It's great that people want to give their time to you. But it's on you to arrange it. And, and this year was a great, great relief for me because I was able to, there was none of that. Because if you, had, if you wanted to come, you had to have two PCR tests and a lateral flow test yeah. and something else. So it, it took the pressure off everyone coming. Some people did come towards the end, but a friend of mine took that responsibility away and he arranged it all, which was great relief for me. 
Um, and, you know, all of that stuff is massively important. I'm always keen when I watch, you see rookies come on tour and you can, you literally, as they have a run in an event, you watch them make all the mistakes you made. Um, you can, you walk in the tournament office and they'll be there going, any chance we can have four more tickets for the balcony there? And my great auntie Moira has come in and all, you know, all this, and you go, yeah, you'll learn, you know, you will learn. Uh, there's a reason why, like Stephen Hendry, when he was at his peak, he had nobody come with him. Nobody. I think, and I think his, you know, his partner might have come to a final every now and again, but literally every now and again. And um, that's the difference between someone who's there to try and win the tournament and someone who's there having a week away. My dad is a big fan of yours. He said last week that you're the closest thing we'll get to an Irish World Snooker Champion for a while. You know, <laughs> often we hear the British media trying to claim people. They often refer to Katie Taylor as British. Yeah. Do you find it funny that the Irish are trying to claim you? Well, obviously, there's a you know there's a there's a close element of truth in it because yeah. you know my my if you could do a DNA test, I'm sure I'm sure more of my makeup is Irish than than English. Um, you know, I was born to two. My two parents were born in England, and I you know I was born and raised in England. But you know, if you go back a generation, most of them were Irish. Um, the family grave is in Kilcock, um, in in Kildare. Um, my mum's side of the family come from uh, near Donabate on the north side of Dublin. And, um, you know, whilst I sound very English, I know that. My, my roots and my, what makes me me is very Irish. Uh, I was brought up in a very, um, you know, you know it, the, there were some very strong values uh, instilled in certainly the house I grew up in as a child and they come from an Irish family you know and uh, I'm all for Ireland trying to claim me you know I, I'm all for it I said in an interview last week that I always imagined myself living in Ireland at some stage in my life it's you know when I met my wife Elaine and you know like most Irish people who go abroad Elaine was very keen to return to Ireland at some stage um, I, was, I, w I wasn't surprised that we ended up here. Um, our daughter, Molly, was born here. And, uh, you know, I, I hope we spend the rest of our lives here. And um, I'm all for being claimed by the Irish. That'll do for me. I want to jump back to this idea of mental practice, something I'm really interested in. I spoke to Ken Darty before. He told me in 97 he visualised himself lifting the trophy. I've spoken to boxers. They tell me they would envision the walk to the, the ring. They would envision the dressing room. They would envision certain scenarios of a boxing match, how they would deal with them should they play out. Is mental practice something you've incorporated into preparation or performance? Oh, without question. I mean, it's something that, you know, it turns out, it turns out by fluke more than anything. But my father instilled a lot of that in me from being a very young boy. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have read it somewhere and, and instilled it in me. But working with my coach, Chris Henry, from 2013, most of our work has been off the table between the years. There has been some technical tweaks on the table along the way. And I'm very lucky that Chris, Chris is able to bridge the gap between snooker and psychology, having been a, you know, a sort of semi-pro snooker player himself, played to a very high level, and then gone off into the world of psychology. Uh, he's able to bridge the gap between both worlds. Um, 
but the vast majority of the work we've done together has been about the mental side of the game. And, you know, there are two elements to it. You know, you've got your the thing in the brain called the amygdala, which basically is, you know, that's like the panic station. And when, when it receives information that it doesn't recognize, it sets off your flight or fight sense. And that's, that's what's kept us the dominant species on the planet. That ability to recognize something as danger and run away from it is why we are the dominant species on this rock. Um, there's a great book out there by Dr. Steve Peters called The Chimp Paradox. It's a fabulous book. And, you know, I'm not paid by anyone to do with that book at all. But if you haven't read it, you really should read it. I wish I'd read it 20 years ago. And that explains it, you know, very, very well. But if, you, if the amygdala doesn't recognize what it sees, it panics. And so if you can feed your subconscious, where all your habits, where your beliefs, where when you sit down and cross your legs, the way you cross your legs is a program. It's a habit subroutine locked in the subconscious. If you can program that with good information, when you then end up in a stressful situation, you can react to it in a much better way because your reactions to things when someone cuts you up in traffic and you give them the finger or you swear at them that's a habit you're reacting like that by habit and you don't realize that because it's been programmed into you and programmed into you and programmed into for year upon year that that's how you react in that scenario and so when i'm practicing i spend a lot of my practice pretending in my mind using that almost like a child's imagination to create scenarios saying, right, I've got to clear these colors now to win the world championship. This is it. Stand up now. You're 26 behind, 27 on, clear them. And by the time you get to the blue or the pink, your subconscious, and here's the other thing about the subconscious, the subconscious doesn't know the difference between something you've imagined or reality. All it knows is what you tell it. And by the time you get to the blue or the pink, having to clear up to win the imaginary world championship, you start to get a bit nervous. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's remarkable what happens because your brain makes it real. The mind is remarkable. And every time you do that, you, every time you do that successfully, it's like laying another cable of memory of a habit. And, and effectively, when, when you get in that situation for real, you're a bit more used to it. Now, it's still a scary moment. It's still difficult and it's still a challenge. But you've rehearsed it. This is why actors and actresses rehearse things. This is why they have, you know, when, when ACDC rock in to do a concert somewhere, this is why they have a sound check because they're rehearsing it. So when they go on stage that night, they've done it before. That's, what, that's, why, that's, why, that's why all of this happens. So, um, you know, a long-winded answer to your question, but the vast majority of, of work that I do nowadays is about how I think, what that little voice in your head, what's he saying? And why is he saying it? And it comes down to, comes down to the very basic thing of whether you say you can or you can't, you'll be right. I just have three more questions and I'll refer to uh, some of the listeners' questions. I'm conscious of time now. I'm interested in this idea of sporting expertise, the factors that underlie high performance. I suppose it goes back to this nature-nurture debate. Do you think mm. experts are born or made? Yeah, it's a very difficult question, isn't it? I, 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 
you know, I'm not a religious person. Um, I, I did used to be quite heavily religious, but I, you know, I'm not anymore. Um, and, but I still find myself saying things like, I think you are born with certain things, you know, I, I'm not sure what God given talent means. given that I'm not, I don't believe in God anymore. Um, I'm not sure what the phrase God given talent means. Don't know what that means anymore. But I think there is an aspect of somebody, if you took, if you, if you take two identical people and, and gave them 10,000 hours or something, and one of them has a slight tendency towards that thing, whatever it is, you know, that person will do better. I think, I think the nature nurture debate is, is, is a very, very deep and difficult one to have. I'll tell you what I do know for a fact is that if you don't put the time and effort in, whether you've got talent or not, if you don't put the thousand upon thousands of hours in required to become a master at something, you can't have it. That's for certain. And then, you know, whatever, whatever the phrase God-given talent means, that's like the added extra at the top. That's where you get somebody like, uh, you know, has Ronnie O'Sullivan put in more practice than Peter Ebden? Probably not. You know, I know Peter very, very well. When he was on the tour, he, we, I grew up in the area where he was the local professional. And like very few people in the game will have put more practice in than Peter. No, Sullivan had more more natural gift for the game. He plays right-handed, left-handed, one-handed. You know, the best player we've ever seen. That's not because he's worked any harder. Uh, and then you've got the flip side of that coin. You've got people who, with, with they've got the biggest gift in the world, and they just don't put the work in. And of course, we've seen plenty of those people over the years as well. And somewhere in the middle, you've got somebody who is gifted, but's also willing to put the graft in. And um, then you're on to something special. The big question on this podcast, and I love the diverse answers I get off the different sport and personalities. It's, I think it's brilliant. Uh, in your mind, what are some of the most crucial factors that are absolutely necessary to achieve high performance? I think you've got to have an incredible, almost an obsessive personality with something. You've got to be willing to, um, certainly as a young man, when I took up playing snooker, I, was, I had to be willing to, every time a friend came and knocked on the door, or an invite to a party came through, or the girls came on the scene, or drink came on the scene, or my obsession with snooker was tested at each at each each stage of my life as a young man. I was bullied at school because of it. I was beaten up in the street because of it as a young kid. Um, you know, there was girls came along, got the car, got the golf, got the drink. Every little one of those was a little test to see whether you wanted it more than anything else. And I could have fallen at any of those hurdles. And I did stumble at a few of them. And I was very lucky that those people around me picked me up and kept me on track and highlighted to me that I was starting to wander. So I think you've got to have that obsessive desire to succeed at something. You've got to have the good support network around you. Um, I see so many people who've got all the right things, but they've got idiots in their corner. And that's a terrible shame. Um, there are some people I know on the snooker tour and I won't name any names of course but there are lads I know on the tour who if they had better people in their camp they'd be better snooker players and that's not really through any fault of their own they, they don't know the, per the person advising them just isn't capable of advising them um, and that's a shame so I was very lucky in that regard I had very good people around me um, I think talent does play a role whatever that means whatever that innate 
talent yeah. factor is. Um, and then I think outside of that, you know, there, there's a, again, what, whatever, whatever the word luck means, I'm not sure what that means, but whatever it does mean, you know, you do need, if you were writing a list of 10 vital ingredients, luck would have to be on there. You know, I was very lucky in my young career that the local, big local firm in my area, Doc Martins, they were based in my county. They agreed to sponsor me. Now, without their sponsorship um, from being 12 years of age, I simply couldn't have afforded to chase the dream of being a snooker player. That's nothing to do with, am I willing to graft? Was I willing to put the work in? Did I sacrifice things for the game? Because I did. But if I hadn't have had their financial input and their support, I couldn't have chased the dream any longer. Simply, it was just simple maths. So there comes a stage where you do, you need a bit of that sprinkling of a bit of luck. And you know, after that, after that obsessive nature, that determination, that, that you just refusing to say no, um, good support, having good people around you and a, and a thirst, a hunger to learn. Uh, I'm not sure you need much more. Brilliant. I think, I think everything else is a bit of fluff, but I think those things are vital. I'm just going to conclude with the fan question, Sean, if that's okay. Uh, this comes in from Ray on Instagram. He says, is there anywhere in Ireland on your bucket list, anywhere you haven't been yet that you'd like to see? Yeah, well, I'm a big golfer and um, I'd love to, you know, I've got a short list of courses I'd love to visit on the island. I'd love to go back to a time in my life where I perhaps didn't have any kids and any responsibilities and I could just hire a big car and go around and do the, do the West Coast tour and go away for two weeks. You know, I'd love to do that. But I'm going to slowly tick these places off, think, over my life. I, I've never really been over to the West Coast much um, for my sins. I've been to Killarney and some other places there doing tours, exhibitions in recent years. But I'd love to do Galway and I'd love to go down to the Southwest um, you know, I'd love to go and see that iconic coastline over there, the Atlantic coast, and um, you know, find myself in an old, in an old pub somewhere, you know, where there's no phone service and you can just go missing for two or three days. That that would suit me down to the ground. Sounds lovely. Another one from Ray. Do you like Guinness? Oh, I um, I always did like Guinness, um, and I never really believed that um, you know the Guinness in Ireland was better than the Guinness elsewhere. But I, I mean, in my it is <laughs> it is nicer here, and um, yeah, no, I, I've become a bit of a fan of the Guinness. Um, but it, uh, I think it's quite calorific, so I think you've got to uh, you've got to you know you've got to be wary of how many of those you sing. Yeah. But yeah, no, I would be a fan of the Guinness. Yeah, for sure, for sure. This one is from Alan on Twitter. He says, "Do you enjoy watching hurling?" I have to say, I've watched a bit of hurling. Um, it's just too, it's too brutal for me. <laughs> you know, I didn't like playing cricket at school because that ball was too hard and it was just too much for me. Um, so when you watch the hurling and they're, you know, they're giving it each other, I just think, oh, this looks, this is a, this is too hard for me. You know, I'm used to a, a much more sedate sport yeah. in snooker. It's indoor and you know, no one gets thrown anything at them or hit with anything. You know, that's my, that's my type of sport, hurling. Hurling looks a bit, it's a bit rough for me. But I'd love to go to a game. I've never actually been to a game, but I would love to. You'd have to go to a tip game. I was saying bias, but tip oh, is yeah. the home no. of hurling. Is it right? Okay, well, listen, I, I'm, I'm open to the invite. I'm open to any invites. The Guinness, afterwards, the Guinness afterwards is on me. That sounds good to me. 
this one comes in from my dad who I know is looking forward to listening to this podcast he's probably next door with his ear to the wall but <laughs> what do you think of Judd Trump's suggestion that they should scrap the waistcoat to modernise the game yeah I think um, I think when the world number one speaks I think uh, you know we owe it to him to listen to him you know he, 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 he does come with some clout now you know as, as the world number one carries some gravitas in the game um, and he's not a child anymore, Judd. He's not a kid anymore. He's a, you know in his thirties, and as I say, he's achieved everything in the game. So his his opinion isn't that of a young kid anymore. And I think in a lot of ways, he, he he's because his recent sort of uh, critiques of the game, I think a lot of them carried weight. Um, my 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 own issue with the dress code is that when you put YouTube on and you go back and watch some footage from the eighties or the nineties. The players were immaculately dressed. And it's one of the things that the, the game has traded on over its years. They were immaculately dressed. Yeah. And over the years, that has changed. And now the players, a lot of the players on the tour, they don't do the top button up, the ties over here, uh, the bow tie, you know, is, looks too big or too small. Uh, as I say, the, the massive big gaping hole at the top of their neckline. The shirt's hanging out the back of the waistcoat. The waistcoat's too long. The trousers are too short. The shoes aren't polished. Uh, they're not wearing dress pants. They're not wearing a dress shirt. shirt. All of those things. The, the standards have just slipped slightly. And a, a bad suit worn badly looks terrible. Um, so I, I wouldn't be a fan of modernising the game's dress code for the sake of it. I'd, but I would support it if it made dressing the players better, easier. Um, if, you, if you only had to wear a polo shirt and trousers or a long shirt, long sleeve shirt and trousers, that feels easier to get right than it. You know, there's quite a few elements if you put a suit on um, with a tie, a bow tie, dress shirt, cufflinks, the right pants, braces. You know, when you start going into that world, if you get one of those elements wrong, you can look a bit of a dustbin. Um, but when you put the YouTube, as I say, you go on YouTube, you look at the dress code from the 70s and the 80s, all the players looked immaculate. They're all wearing tailored suits from Savile Row and they've got the dress shirts on. And Doug Mountjoy, who passed away last year, he was famous for his red frilly shirts. And listen, that fashion's come and go. But it feels as if the players from yesteryear made a bigger effort with how they dressed and I think how they carried the game and how they, I think they understood that their appearance on screen mattered more. And I guess, I don't know whether just because of the, you know, the world's changed, doesn't it? The world, the world has changed. This one comes in from Chris. He wants to know your opinion on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Obviously I know you're a big United fan. Do you think Solskjaer is the man to get United to that next level whereby they can challenge Man City and win the league? Uh, I'm not sure now. For me, for me, you know, he's at that he's at that junction now, probably where he's been in the job a bit. Um, I was all for giving him an extra year or two, you know, a season ago. Um, I was thinking about this earlier on, funnily enough, because I sort of preempted these. I actually preempted this question. I, I was thinking when I was putting the bin out this morning. I was actually thinking about <laughs> this question. Because uh, if I could have anyone in the job, it would probably be someone like a Roy Keane, yeah, um, who's a bit more in the Alex Ferguson mould. 
And I was thinking that whilst, whilst Alex Ferguson's methods would probably be seen as quite draconian now, they'd probably be seen as quite old-fashioned, they were extremely effective. Um, and I lived in Manchester for a long, long time, spent a lot of time in and around Old Trafford. Uh, and, you know, lots of friends and lots of friends were on the youth team and this had quite a few close connections to the club. And you would hear stories of how Alex, Sir Alex, I should say, you know, ran the club. Um, and just strikes me that, you know, when you're talking about man management and bringing the best out of people, no one's come close to how, what he was able to do. Uh, we, we haven't found anyone who's been able to motivate that team of players. Uh, and get the best out of these players um, like he was able to do. And uh, I don't know what the answer is, to be honest with you. I don't know. I'm the same as everyone else. I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I hope we're not going to endure. I really hope we're not going to endure what the Liverpool fans had to endure for 20, 30 years of, of mediocrity uh, before suddenly bursting out of it in the last couple of years. I hope we're not having this conversation in 20 years about what direction United should go. Um, but you know, there's there's a there's a fair bit of there's a fair bit of trouble, isn't there, going on at yeah. the moment? And I, I'm not sure that all this, I'm not sure that um, what's going on at Old Trafford the last couple of days and you know last couple of weeks off the pitch is uh, helping. Um, I, I completely understand where people are with it and people's emotions and people's beliefs, but I'm not sure it's actually helping the lads on the pitch get the result, which of course is what it's all about. And um, ultimately, I, you know, I suppose I'm glad I'm a snooker player and not a football manager right now. <laughs> the final question, Sean, I want to, before I finish, once again, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure meeting you. If you had 30 minutes to have a conversation with someone, you're sitting on a bench, you have 30 minutes, this person can be dead or alive, it can be a musician, a sports person, an author. If you have 30 minutes to have a conversation with someone, who would it be and why? Do you know what? It, it would be myself and, I, and I'd, I'd go back in time and I'd have a conversation with a younger version of me because uh, when I was younger I said and did a few things that I wish I hadn't done um, you know I gave some press conferences years ago where I said some things which haunt me now you know as a grown man I think well, you couldn't say that you shouldn't have said that I'd go back and tell that person to just keep their head down uh, just practice focus on what they were trying to achieve don't get involved in all the stuff off the table don't get involved with, you know, running the game and doing things, the players board and all of this stuff, you know, just don't start telling the world's press that you want to be remembered as the greatest ever player and all this. You know, I, I said some really dumb things when I was a kid and, um, you know, I wish I could go back and change those things. Um, I can't, but if I could have that minute, if I could have that 30 minute chat with somebody, it'd be, you know, Sean Murphy when he was 18, 19, because he, he thought he knew everything and he actually knew nothing. You're a class act. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. Cheers. I enjoyed that. Nice one. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Nice to meet you too. I hope I'm and, uh, happy to, happy to, happy to Happy to come on any time. Like, you know, if you ever fancy a chat about anything, you know, let me know. Uh, very Brilliant. happy to, to get involved. And yeah, if the offer for a, a game in, in tips any ever on, let me know. And uh, certainly the first few points are on me. We have a snooker club in Clamell circles. If you're ever down, I'm sure. I'm sure right. at some stage. I think um, I'm sure at some stage when all normality kicks off, like that, uh, the exhibition circuit will reignite, and uh, 
I'm sure I'll find myself in your neck of the woods at some stage because um, there's a lot of clubs in Ireland I've not been to, you know. So apparently they're all my mate runs that side of things for me, and they're all they're all queuing out the door now to get me booked in. So um, be great to get around the tour, and maybe I'll get some of those places around the country ticked off that I want to visit, you know. So kill two birds with one stone, that'll be great. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. Yourself. Thanks for listening to Red Devil Talk. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Devil Talk. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. If you have any questions or comments or want more information on Red Devil Talk podcasts, you can get in touch via email at reddevilTalkMedia at gmail.com. The Red Devil Talk podcasts are a Red Devil Talk Media production.